Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law and Virginia Appellate Attorney Steve Emmert. Listening to oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia is one of the best ways to stay abreast of both substantive and procedural law. And today's smart lawyers know that any case, even if it is outside their practice area, can offer a learning opportunity. So, listen, enjoy, subscribe, and leave us feedback. May it please the Court, Lloyd Snook here on behalf of Patrick Wakeman. I'd ask to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. (coughs) Mr. Wakeman (coughs) was convicted and sentenced to life for raping his niece, where the only evidence or the most important evidence that corroborated the niece's testimony came from a nurse who was accepted as a a sexual assault expert, despite never having taken, actually apparently she, uh, she never took, uh, but certainly didn't pass the certification exam, and he did not use best practices in the collection efforts. We have argued that as a result of, and, and obviously whether somebody is deemed to be an expert is something that is to the sound discretion of the trial court, but we would suggest the, the sound discretion of the trial court it has to include at some level a question or an assessment of the competence of that person, that simply having sat in the classes doesn't mean that you actually know anything from being in those classes. Suppose, that's you, exactly were, her suppose you were competent, but she technically didn't have her certificate. But there's, hypothetically, suppose the witness is absolutely competent, there's no real challenge to her factual competency and her experience and her education and her knowledge. But for whatever reason, she doesn't have a piece of paper that says certificate on top of it. Would you say that they sh- she should be excluded? Judge, uh, Your Honor, the, uh, not, not, not entirely. Uh, but what I would say is that this court has said, and I, I'm blanking right now on the case, so I may find it as we talk. Uh, where uh, it was noted that not only uh, there was not only the issue of was was there a certificate, but was there something in the record that demonstrated the competence? And I note in this particular case there was no, nothing in the record uh, that said. I mean, she, yes, she had been a sexual assault uh, nurse examiner or been functioning that way, even though she didn't have the certificate uh, for a year or two. But there was nothing in the record that says, and I have seen, I've worked on 47 cases, and as a result of working on those 47 cases, I can tell you that you know, very, my, my competence has been proven by other people checking the work. It's important to note here that this is the kind Don't of... Don't let me put words in your mouth, but I'm trying to figure out if that were the case, would your argument be, I'm sorry, she didn't have the certificate, it's a deal breaker. Are you arguing that? I'm not suggesting you are or you aren't, I'm just asking you. I would say, Judge, uh, Justice, that, that the issue uh, is, yes, we would argue that she needs to have the certificate, but understand that there is uh, authority in this court that suggests that the real issue being solely one of competence, our fallback position would be that there has been no, no demonstration of competence in this particular case. Uh, and so the issue at this point, it seems to me, uh, has to be whether it is a, a, um, a lack of discretion or an abuse of discretion to not require some minimal competence shown on the record, uh, and there was not in this case. This leads to an interesting 
question that we have raised a couple different times, and I don't know that this court has ever specifically discussed this point, but I referred to the analysis of Professor Winkleried, where he notes the three different kinds of expert testimony that might be offered. And I think everybody would agree there's plenty of case law from this court about what he would call the educating function of an expert, plenty of what he would call the interpreting function of an expert. But there's not really a clear discussion that I've seen that says that there is at some level a requirement for competence, for expertise, in certain kinds of evidence collection, in reporting of the evidence. And that's really the issue here. Because we know, particularly in this era of forensic evidence, I mean, if the only question was, did you conduct an examination of the person at the scene of the crime, that's not really a question of expertise. But we clearly perceive a need for expertise in the collection of forensic evidence, in the preservation of forensic evidence, and simply saying, you know, I'm a good old boy, and I've done this thing. But is that really your case? If the test is abuse of discretion, and there's no, you know, ace in the hole with the absence of a certificate, then abuse of discretion goes to the trial judge unless no reasonable jurist could possibly come to such a crazy answer. We have three judges of the Court of Appeals who have held, looking at exactly the same evidence that you two are talking about, quote, there's little doubt, end quote, that she possessed scientific, technical, or other specialized knowledge regarding sexual assault forensic examination. So we have four judges saying that, and they're all abusing their discretion. What every one of those judges has said is we're applying basically the two questions, and I think it's fair to say that both, well, certainly the Court of Appeals understood exactly what this court had said in Velazquez, where the issues were, number one, is there knowledge, skill, and experience? And two, does she possess specialized knowledge of the subject matter beyond that of persons of common intelligence and ordinary experience? We have conceded that she possesses the knowledge, but possessing knowledge and possessing skill are two different things. And there has never been a test of whether she actually learned what she was being told, whether, as I noted, whether her completing the 80 hours but never completing the certification exam, does that mean simply she showed up for 80 hours and ate the donuts? What would you propose be the test? If there is an expert where there is no certification requirement, what would you propose in all of the cases across the state where experts testify as to what the test would be? The test would have to be, as this court has indicated, that there has to be a showing on the record of a demonstrated competence, of an expertise, of a possession of a skill that is sufficient to give the court, a trial court, and ultimately a reviewing court, confidence that the person actually knows what they're talking about. So she worked under a reviewer for a year, and then she's worked independently for at least two years. What is it that you are suggesting the test should be? 
should be to demonstrate her competence? I would start with saying, with having her say, as I think every expert witness I've ever tried to qualify as an expert at trial level, and I ask them, how many times have you done this? Have you done this procedure before? How many times? That's not here. We don't know. To say that she's been serving in that capacity, it may be a sleepy hospital where this kind of activity doesn't come across very often. The important point, the thing that's troubling about this particular kind of reporting is that there is no ability to get a do-over if she does it wrong. There's no retest possible. There's no defense option to come in and say, let's check the DNA. For example, the standard protocol right now is that when you're doing a DNA test, you save half of the sample so that the DNA can be checked by a defense expert. Or if you're doing a DUI, you take two breath samples so that they can be checked. Counsel, let me ask you, assume it was error, assume that. Why was it not harmless? Your Honor, in this day and age with the CSI effect is truly very pronounced at the trial level. Every person who tries criminal cases these days understands just what importance the jury attaches to DNA evidence. I've had cases where the prosecutors get up and they apologize to the jury for the fact that there is no DNA evidence in a drug case. Or because they know that juries give a great deal of weight even when they shouldn't be giving a great deal of weight. Well, that may be so, but in this case, wasn't the victim pretty specific about what happened? She was pretty specific, and of course he was pretty specific that it didn't happen. Counsel, I'm going to push back on that answer. There is significant direct evidence. There is contemporaneous circumstantial evidence. There are multiple people who are friends of hers, the mother and the wife, who are testifying as to what was said immediately afterwards. And then he gets on the stand, and frankly, if I was a juror, I wouldn't find him believable. Gee, she wanted me to show her some wrestling moves. I mean, the harmless error argument is one that resonates in this instance, if there's error at all. And I would simply say, Your Honor, that perhaps the best indication that people there at the trial level did not regard this as, wouldn't have regarded it as harmless error, is the lengths to which they were going to get that scientific corroboration. I understand what's important. Of course, it's the CSI effect, as you said. That's right. Why don't you have DNA? That's right. But if you didn't have DNA, the evidence is truly overwhelming. And again, frequently I see a harmless error argument, and I just go right past it. But this is one, like I said, that resonates. Well, and I guess what I would say, Your Honor, is that... His own testimony speaks against him. Well, that's obviously a conclusion... That the jury reached. That the jury reached. And one of the reasons they probably reached it was because they had scientific evidence telling them that this is wrong. Now, you can't just sort of say, well, okay, let's push the most compelling evidence we've got off to one side, and then just look at everything else. 
because the jury and the prosecutor and the defense lawyer and everybody else in the courtroom understood how critical that evidence was. I'd, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time if I might. All right. Thank you. Would you hire an appellate lawyer to handle your jury trial? Of course not. Trying cases requires a different focus, a different way of speaking, even a different way of thinking from handling appeals. So why would you ask a trial lawyer to handle your appeal? When it comes time to appear in an appellate court, trust a lawyer who specializes in appeals only. Steve Emmert limits his practice to appeals. Other lawyers consult him when they face tough problems in the appellate maze. Focus on what you do best. Call Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021 direct to find out how he can help you. Again, that's Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021. May I please the court? Good morning, Catherine Adelfio on behalf of the Commonwealth. Given the granted assignment of error and the limited objections made in the circuit court below, the only question before the court today is whether or not the trial court abused its discretion in qualifying registered nurse Balchunas as an expert in sexual assault forensic examinations when she had not yet been certified as a SANE. To the extent that the defendant argues on appeal that the DNA evidence was inadmissible, but because Balchunas was improperly qualified and because she allegedly used inferior methods to collect that evidence, these arguments are barred pursuant to rules 5.17 and 5.25. This court should affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals, which did not err, including that the trial court did not abuse its discretion in qualifying Balchunas as an expert. The abuse of discretion standard is a difficult hurdle for the defendant to overcome. To overcome this hurdle, the defendant has to demonstrate that Balchunas was clearly not qualified. The record here, as the Court of Appeals found, demonstrates the opposite. Balchunas had a bachelor's in nursing. She had worked in an emergency department since 2010. She was part of a forensic nursing program at the Winchester Medical Center. And she had performed sexual assault examinations for approximately three years at the time that she examined the victim. In November 2014, she had completed 80 hours of training. And she testified that since 2014, she had been working as a sexual assault nurse examiner. Wakeman, during the trial, did not contend that any portion of her education, training, or experience was falsely represented to the court. Well, counsel, why has the statute required the qualification as the same? Why do we even have that? Your Honor, the only place in the code that discusses certification as the same is in the drug control statute, which addresses whether certified SANEs can possess and administer medicine, the medication. The General Assembly, in other circumstances and with respect to other subject matters, has required that experts receive certification or licensure, but it has not with respect to sexual assault nurse examinations. Right, so for example, medical malpractice, there's a lot of strictures for who can testify in terms of areas of expertise. 
Um, so we default to the rule. That's correct, Your Honor. And so we supply the plain language of the rule, right? Correct. And, and where the General Assembly, the General Assembly knows how to require certification. It did so in, med, in medical malpractice. It's done so in sexual violent predator um, cases. It's done so in capital cases where mental retardation, retardation is a potential issue. So then it becomes a matter of weight rather than admissibility. That's I mean, my expert did a thousand of these surgeries. Your expert only did five. Okay, well, fine. The jury can figure out, you know, who's telling the truth. My expert went to this fancy school. Your expert went to the land-grant school. Whatever. But the jury can sort out the believability uh, after the person is admitted. That's absolutely correct, Your Honor. And, and in fact, the defendant um, actually acknowledged that the lack of certification went more to the weight of Baltrinus' testimony. Um, and he never argued that it went to the admissibility of Baltrinus' um, testimony. Rule 2.702 only requires that an expert have the knowledge, skill, and expertise and training in an area that is beyond the knowledge and experience of ordinary persons. Um, and as the Court of Appeals found, Baltrinus well, satisfied this requirement under Rule 2.702. Um, other courts have held that state certification as a saying is not required to qualify as an expert in sexual assault nurse examinations. Um, in fact, the Court of Appeals of Michigan held that to require certification in a subfield of the larger medical um, profession would lead to an absurd result. It would lead to the uh, requirement that <coughs> certifications be developed every time there was a novel or a new area of expertise or new, new uh, subject matter. And I'd also point out that requiring that a SANE certification be uh, possessed prior to the collection of a PERC kit leads to practical problems. Not every hospital is going to have a SANE certified nurse on staff or one might not always be available. And under uh, Wakeman's theory, other medical professionals who have training experience in uh, the larger field of medicine would not be able to collect those per, per kits. Um, accordingly, because the General Assembly has not seen fit to create a statutory requirement for certification for SANE nurses, and because Balchinas had the knowledge, the skill, the training, and the education um, in the field of sexual assault nurses, or sexual assault examinations, the circuit court did not abuse its discretion in qualifying her as an expert. And again, as, as I noted at the beginning of my argument, to the extent that Wakeman argues, argues that the DNA evidence was inadmissible, this argument is waived. He never made that specific argument below. At the time that the DNA was offered, he never moved to strike the DNA evidence. What he did do was argue that the jurors should not give great weight to Balchunas' testimony. He, he did so through the cross-examination of Balchunas with respect to her method of collection, and he argued to the jury during, the, during his closing argument that the jury um, should assign little weight to the DNA evidence given her method of collection. These actions that taken by the defendant did not sufficiently put the question of the admissibility of this evidence squarely before the trial court. And 
For all these reasons, the Commonwealth asks that this court affirm the decision of the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank you. To make one one comment, I suppose, on uh, Ms. Balchunas's uh, competence, I note that she had been uh, it had been 18 months since her training was completed before this examination took place, and there is nothing in the record that says how many times she's done a sexual assault examination, what she's been doing during that 18 months, whether she's been supervised at all, whether she it did say she was performing sane exams. Uh, in 2013. Wouldn't they be great cross-examination questions going to the weight and seeking to impeach the credibility of the witness as opposed to admissibility? Certainly that is, that, that's the, the position that the trial court took and is in essence the position that the Court of Appeals took. This court has said that there is uh, a basic level of reliability that has to be established before expert testimony is admitted and, there is, and we don't simply just throw it out there for whatever weight the jury may choose to give it. And this is one of those situations where we argue that the evidence is, is so strong in its effect on juries that we dare not simply say, ah, we don't know whether you're any good or not, but we'll let, you, we'll let you talk to the jury. And that's in essence what we've got here. We don't know whether Ms. Balchunas is competent, was competent, uh, we don't know, that, well, we do know that she never passed the exam. We do know that she never sat for the exam. We don't know why she never sat for the exam. We don't know how many cases she's ever seen. We don't know whether people who have ever looked at what she was doing uh, have said, boy, you're really good at that. We don't have that. So uh, that's, I think, the, the crucial difference. The other thing I would note in response to one of the Commonwealth's arguments about the Gee, if, we, if you do what the defense is asking for here, you're going to hamstring the ability of people all over the Commonwealth to get perk kits. That's not actually the specific rule that I am asking this court to find is that under the circumstances of this case, given the nature of the evidence that was at issue in this case, given the fact that she admittedly didn't use the best procedure to give her the straight shot at the, the sample she was trying to get, and given how that affected every, you know, the, the, the overall theory of this case, under these facts, this was an abuse of discretion. That doesn't mean that people who don't have the SANE exam certificate can't conduct SANE exams and have them be admissible in cases where the crucial problem is a matter of technique that goes exactly to this issue. It may mean that somebody who uh, is conducting, who is doing a SANE exam, for example, who doesn't have any particular experience, may not be permitted to uh, express an opinion about a particular injury because that person may not have the, the competence to do that, but counsel, would be competent counsel, to take the evidence. What, what has concerned me about your argument all along is that you are mixing uh, qualification with weight your argument of not using the best practice somehow informing the qualification. But that would not work in a situation, or perhaps your argument would be maybe that it would. We had a sane nurse who testified, I've done 2,000 of these, I have been certified, and they use traction as opposed to a speculum. Would you still make the same argument that, that what you consider to be a not best practice 
draws into question whether they are qualified as an expert? As I interpret the testimony and giving the inferences to the prosecution, there would be that there would be certain cases where using the speculum would not be best practices. And I know from other research, it's not in the record, that there are some cases where that might be the situation. But there you've got, I've got 2,000 cases of experience to qualify that. In this case, she gave no reason for not using the speculum. She didn't say... Well, she gave a reason for not using the speculum. She gave a reason. You perhaps disagreed with her reason, but she said that in young females it's preferable. Whether that's correct or not, but she gave a reason. I think what she said, and it may be, and I'm trying to remember exactly what she said, but it's in the record. I think my recollection is something more along the lines of it might be or something like that. But in any event, I agree that the crucial distinction would be between your hypothetical and our case. I've done 2,000 of these. I know what I'm doing. All right. Thank you very much, counsel. The court will be in recess until 1055. Thank you for tuning in to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. My name is Ben Glass, and Steve Emmert and I provide these oral argument audios for free as a public service. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd love to send you my book, Renegade Lawyer Marketing, absolutely free. Just visit www.benglassreferrals.com, and I'll be glad to ship it to you. This book has helped thousands of lawyers across the country improve their lives and their practices. Again, that's benglassreferrals.com. Thank you for listening, and enjoy these oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia.